Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda and I'm here with Executive Director of the Parenthood and regular Women's Agenda contributor, Georgie Dent. Hello, Georgie. Hello. Thank you for having me. That's okay. So on the agenda today, we will be discussing the motherhood penalty costing Australian women. The figure is so high, I won't even mention it in this introduction. A little bit more about what the most powerful women do. We are going to touch on the surge of independents who are running. Plus, we have a special interview regarding the University of Melbourne's new Hilda findings. Thank you for listening. Hello, Georgie. Getting through to the end of the year. We get you one more time on this podcast. I know. We're nearly there. It has to be one of the longest years on record, surely. So let's just hope 2022 will have a few better things in store. What we can say is that it looks like there will be a few changes occurring and we're definitely heading for an election. So what is your win for women this week? I think that my win is just watching the continued rise of principled, experienced, professional women who are putting their hands up and saying they are running as independents in the federal election. I think that it's pretty extraordinary when 2021 has revealed, I think, the extent to which the Australian Parliament in particular remains a very difficult place of work for women. You know, we've seen for the last few years lots of research that shows, particularly among young women, there's absolutely no appetite for putting their hands up and running for federal politics or any level of politics because it's been so ugly. And what we are seeing now is that there are women right around the country from all sorts of different professional backgrounds. We are seeing women looking at our two-party system and thinking enough is enough. And they are putting their hands up and they are running. And what is pretty extraordinary is the support that they're being met with. You know, so we've seen a few launches in in recent days. You know, Zoe Daniels, the former ABC foreign correspondent, you know, more than 500 people turned out in the Victorian seat where she's running. Allegra Spender in Wentworth, Dr Sophie Smet in Sydney. And we're just seeing hundreds and hundreds of people turn out to show their support for these women who are standing really for action on climate, action on integrity and action on gender equity. We've also seen that Climate 200, the group that's being run by Simon Holmes Accord that is funding a lot of independent candidates, the money that they have been able to raise because of people saying the system isn't working just fills me with hope that we could, after the next federal election, have a crossbench of clever women of integrity who may hold the balance of power and will at least be able to influence some of the outcomes. Absolutely. And I love also that Kathy McGowan sort of remains the poster child of this independent movement and everything that she stands for and everything that she pushed around integrity and even how she handed on the baton and just realized, you know, saw that when her time was done, it was time to support the next person in that role. And to think that she has set the bar so high and that she's inspired so much more of this. I think it just really shows the power of, in that case, I see it is, you know, there was one community that really sought to put an independent there in 2013 when she took the seat from Liberal frontbencher Sophie Mirabella, who at the time was so deeply unpopular in that area, but it was always just sort of felt like a given that a Liberal would always hold that seat. And the, the community raised up to put Kathy McGowan um, in that position and she did such a wonderful job and they have set the bar so high and just showed all these other electorates how it can be done. And we saw that happen, obviously, 
obviously with Zali Segal in Rohingya, and to think about what might happen now and how the Australian politics will be reshaped by this movement has already been reshaped, but will continue to be reshaped going into 2022. It's extraordinary. And it's so interesting that they are pretty much all female as well, these independents. Yeah, I know. It is quite fascinating to me. I mean, the other thing that I would say is we still are not having the sort of representation of there aren't very many among the independents. There are very few, well, there are no, to my knowledge, First Nations women. There are no women from migrant backgrounds. I think it's important to say that because we also have to recognise the sort of structural barriers that exist within the cohort of women in this country. But I also, I do think that it's pretty remarkable that there are so many women who are, you know, and lots of these women do have careers, they've got families And they are putting a lot on the line for an opportunity to change the shape of Australian politics. And I think that is a win. One thing on that, so we do see, and maybe this speaks to those structural barriers as well, but we have had Indigenous women, women of colour running as independents in a lot of these seats. And we did see that in the last election, including in the seat of Warringah with Susan Moylan-Combs, who launched a campaign at that point. So she was also running against Sally Stegall and, and Tony Abbott at that point. But it is interesting when you say that they're not necessarily getting the funding or the huge media support and turnout that some of these other women are getting. So it would be great to see more representation that might happen. We may see more of that in the months to come, but definitely it's what is needed. So I might share just a quick win then. I've talked about Mackenzie Scott previously. We have had her as a win numerous times um, because she just keeps doing wonderful things. But this time we're putting her as a win because she has topped the Forbes 2021 Most Powerful Women list. And I just love how she's come to top that list, particularly because she hasn't exactly worked PR magic to get there. She hasn't created a life of ego and getting noticed and building everything up to be famous and to get on the cover of Forbes. Rather, she has access to capital and she's giving in a way that is making a difference in a way that doesn't always see press releases issued, in a way that the money just goes to different organisations, that she's not asking for anything in return. And she's given away so many billions and she will continue to give away so many billions. And As we've discussed previously, she's not exactly using her wealth or access to try and get into space or something. Rather, she's trying to support things that actually need addressing here on Earth. And I continue to just love what she does. So well done, Mackenzie Scott, for for getting that recognition. I know that you didn't need it. I know that she won't take anything from that, but I think it's admirable to see how that sort of power is being recognised in that way. To the stories this week is we're so lucky to have you directly to speak to this, but I do, of course, want to talk about the motherhood penalty and the research that the parenthood has been involved in. And the figure, if I might say it, that you've come up with is $876,000 over the course of a lifetime. That is what the motherhood penalty is costing working women in Australia. So tell us about it. How do you get to that figure? What are we going to do about it? Yeah, absolutely. So The Parenthood commissioned Equity Economics, which is a female-run economics firm based in Melbourne, to look at the working patterns of women in Australia compared to women in Canada, in Germany and in Sweden. So that we could make that comparison, we had to drill those numbers down. So what we have ultimately landed on is the average working woman. What are her earnings and what is her working pattern? And what is really interesting is that we know 
that women in Australia are very well educated. They're highly skilled. We have consistently held the number one rank for educating women and girls since 2006. We've held that number one ranking. And we now rank 70th in the world for women's workforce participation. And we really sort of wanted to get to the bottom of that and see why is that gap? Why does that exist? And also, what does it cost women? And what equity economics modelled is that if the average Australian woman had the same working pattern as the average Swedish woman after having children, she would earn an additional $696,000 over her working life and retire with an additional $180,000 in super, which is how we get to that astonishing figure of more than $800,000. And what's interesting is that women in Australia actually work more than women in Sweden before they have children. And so I think that makes the point that this is achievable. You know, we have got a situation where women are already in the workforce, but what's happening is after a baby comes along in Sweden, the pattern is very different to Australia and we know why. It's not inexplicable. It's not an accident. Sweden has invested in the policies that enable women to move between work and home. And those policies are things like adequate and equitable paid parental leave that sets parents up for sharing the care and sharing the paid work. They've invested in high quality early childhood education and care where the average cost is 5% of a family's income, whereas in Australia that figure is closer to 24% of family income. And those policies mean women in Sweden are on a more even playing field after having a baby than women in Australia. What I think is pretty extraordinary when we got these figures, I looked at the super balances. And so the most recent figures show that the average super balance for a woman who is aged between 50 and 54 in Australia, the average super balance is $157,000. Now, this research shows that a woman could have an additional $180,000 in super just from the period after having children. That is a game changer. And because what happens is your workforce participation, it's not just that you stay connected to paid work, but it's that you are likely to progress and be promoted and become more senior and your earnings will increase. Whereas what we see is that women in Australia, after they have a baby, their earnings drop really significantly. And that is because we have made it so difficult for mothers in particular to stay connected to paid work after having a child. Mm. And we might say that the earnings of men, the research shows, actually increase after having a baby. So you can see there's the opposite of a penalty for dads. Maybe we call it a bonus, the fatherhood bonus. Yes, the fatherhood bonus, which just makes this gap so much bigger. But I wanted to ask you, so when we talk about the period after a woman has a child, so obviously there's that period of taking direct paid parental leave and then direct unpaid parental leave that occurs. But it continues beyond that, right? Because are we talking about part-time working patterns? Are we talking about flexible careers that may not be valued in the way that full-time careers are valued and therefore promotions don't happen? So it's a little bit of a vicious cycle for mothers in Australia because we know that what happens in the first year of a child's life in terms of the caring patterns that are set in that period persist over the course of a child's life and the parents' lives. So this is why paid parental leave policy is systems change on one level. 
because Australia has got a really pronounced gap between mothers and fathers that other countries don't have. And the reason for that is that Australian dads take less than 20% of the average parental leave that dads take globally. Mums do the lion's share of parenting and caring. And what happens then is because our paid parental leave policy settings entrench a situation where we have got one primary breadwinner and one primary caregiver, and it almost invariably in Australia, the primary breadwinner is the dad and the primary caregiver is the mum. So it means then from that moment on, the work choices of the mother are constrained by those settings. So if you have got a partner who works full-time and more than full-time, and you are taking on the bulk of the caregiving and all of the unpaid work that's required in the home, your ability to participate in paid work is significantly reduced. Now, what has been modelled, and actually this was a piece of research the Parenthood published in February this year, is that what happens when you split paid parental leave? So if we had a system, if we had a world-class paid parental leave policy that split the first 12 months between the mother and the father, if we're talking about a two-parent heterosexual family, what we see there is that women are more likely to return to work within that sort of first year and then they're more likely to stay connected to paid work more consistently over the course of their career because an arrangement has been set where the expectation is that both parents take responsibility for the caring and the paid work. And that's where a lot of people do say, what about choice? You know, what if mothers don't want to work full time? And that's that's a completely valid choice. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what we have to recognise is the choices that women in Australia are making right now are not occurring in a vacuum. They are occurring in a community and an economy and a culture where the expectation is that dads are able to go to work unshackled by caring responsibilities at home and women are expected to combine their responsibilities to the home, their children and their work. And that means it is very difficult for women to work full-time when they've got a family because of that. What would be less difficult is if they share the care with a partner and they both work four days a week. You know, and that is the arrangement that we see in Germany, for example, where they do have a very generous paid parental leave scheme and incredibly affordable early education and care. In Germany, the average cost is 1% of household earnings for care. And they have an arrangement there where it is much more normal for both parents to work four days a week, for example. Then in Australia, we have a situation where one parent might work five days a week, but in reality, it might be six days a week. And a mum might work two days a week or three days a week. If you change the paid parental leave settings, you even that spread out and it becomes more equitable. And then that creates opportunities for women because they are able to commit to work knowing that they're also supported by a partner at home on the home front and they're sharing the load. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's not just the, the physical load of working. It's not just the physical hours that you're putting in. It's also the mental load. And that has to be taken into consideration. That's why a four-day work week is so reasonable for a two-partnered household. It makes so much sense. It gives them a little bit more flexibility, just a little bit of room and stretch in their working week to be able to do everything else that will be expected of them outside of that. And to make sure that that is shared equally is is 
is so important. I'm staggered by that figure that it's 1% of household income in Germany and then 5% in Sweden. I mean, I thought the Swedes were doing pretty good, but 1%, that is absolutely incredible. And it's a really high quality system. And one of my colleagues actually at the Parenthood, Michael, he is German and he is married to an Australian woman and they had their three children in Berlin. And their older boys, when they went into early education and care, the boys were both in four days a week, basically full-time, sort of 8.30 till 5. And it cost $200 a month for both of them to go four days a week. And that $200 was covering the cost of food. And the food was incredible. They returned to Australia when their youngest daughter was 18 months. And they were horrified that a single day was sort of upwards of $130. Um, before the subsidy, but you know, you, you, they they were quite astonished, having lived in Germany and had the benefit where they both did take equal shares of paid parental leave. They both worked four days a week. Care was completely affordable. It was high quality, and they arrived back in Australia and they were really gobsmacked because not just the cost of care, but what Michael noticed was their situation was so rare, where they both took responsibility for working and caring. Um, And they have found that that is not the norm here. You know, it's like they're kind of going against the grain, which we see all the time. Like we know that in the same way that mums are still discriminated against um, in the workplace, so are dads who seek flexibility. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I can't help but think about all the Hilda research that has come out this week as well, um, which obviously speaks to different sides of this, but one being in terms of the, the lower birth rate that is occurring. It is actually occurring worldwide, but certainly occurring here in Australia. And part of that is that some women and men who want to have children, this research is finding that they will have fewer children than they had planned to have. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that is, you know, one that women are having children later on in life. There's fertility can be an issue, which we do get to in this upcoming interview as well. But you can't sort of help but not think about that factor of cost and especially once you have one child and you see the costs associated with having a child the the costs of uh, childcare, but also the cost of taking out that time from the from the workforce and also the cost of the years that you need to spend having more flexibility potentially part-time work um, just to be able to sustain some kind of working life at the same time so there's definitely so much there that could be contributing to that particular finding of course the other key Hilda findings, which is what we do sort of learn about every year, but I found it particularly alarming, I felt this year, is that women are doing almost double the hours of unpaid work per week compared to men. And it's highlights, I mean, that was just one of a number of different worrying trends for women, including uh, they highlight the, the soaring cost of childcare and the fact that single parent families and young people continue to be disproportionately disadvantaged compared to the rest of the community. So there's a lot in there. But once again, we are looking at that unpaid work figure and it's barely budging. And here we are at the same time looking at how that unpaid work just gets absolutely no value. But then at the same time, women who are taking on the bulk of that unpaid work and then often also mothers are taking on a penalty in terms of their career, in terms of their financial capacity, in terms of their economic security later on in life, and in terms of their superannuation. And we know where that leads to when when women don't have the savings to retire on. The outcomes are not good. We have to call for change. So thank you so much for that call to action. We do have that election coming up and we don't actually need any ideas. The ideas are all there. Not only that, we can see some good case studies and examples overseas and see the benefits firsthand. It's all there. Yes. And so on that note, I would say that the campaign we're running is called Parents Up 
and we are saying this is a campaign for anyone who wants a better deal for families, a better deal for women and a better deal for children. Please join Parents Up and um, help us make sure we put these issues on the agenda at the election because we have to hold our politicians to account. We know that these are the policies that would transform our country and tinkering around the edges will no longer cut it. Well, stay on the line just for a couple of minutes because I am going to ask you for a recommendation for what you're doing, listening, enjoying outside of when you're not running this campaign and looking to change the lives for all Australians and families and children everywhere. But before we get there, I mean, we have touched on the Hilda stats and we are now going to dive a lot further into them thanks to this interview. So this interview has been done by our journalist, uh, Madeline Hislop, who will introduce our next guest. And thank you so much to Hilda and for the excellent research and the stats that we get that we like to then continue to, to pull on over the years as well, because it really does support our work. So we're lucky to get this time now with Dr. Esperanza Vera Toscano, economist and senior research fellow at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research and an author of the latest Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia report, also known as HILDA. In this interview, so Madeline doesn't so much dive into the 21 hours more unpaid work that women are doing over men every week that made a lot of headlines this week and that we do have a story on that on Women's Agenda. But here, she looks at a few curious other trends and their wider implications that have come from this hill of research, including the upward trend in the number of adults living with their parents for longer, particularly among young women and some of the factors behind that. And she also asks Esperanza about the Hilda findings on the rates of women and men having fewer children than they had wanted to and a little bit more around what is behind that. So the interview does also explore other issues and we will cross to it right now. So hi Esperanza, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Madeline, for bringing me on board. And I'm very happy to discuss with you and to present you some of the results we got this year on our HILDA report. Great, thank you. So I think if we start with the segment you did on the makeup of Australian households, um, the report shows that couples with dependent children are sort of the most common type of household, making up about 41% of the population. And then I thought one of the most interesting trends in that section was how there has been an upward trend in the number of young adults living with their parents for longer. Um, And in this age group of young adults, um, the report showed that it's most pronounced among young women between the ages of 18 and 25. And I'd love to just hear from you some of your thoughts around this trend of young adults living at home with their parents for longer and also why you think maybe young women are the ones most affected. Okay, well, uh, we can say that the current trend towards uh, leaving the parental home later in life, particularly for women, reflects uh, mutually reinforcing effects of various factors. No? First, uh, the increased participation in higher education of women, for sure. Uh, nowadays, women are more likely than men to go to university, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics reveals that in 2020, uh, 37% of women reached uh, or got a bachelor degree 
compared to less than 30% of men. So clearly, this uh, greater involvement uh, of women in pursuing uh, more education means that they are uh, less financially independent and they need to postpone moving out of the household because they are postponing not only moving out of the parental home, but also uh, getting into uh, young and adult uh, lives, no? like in terms of uh, bringing uh, up uh, children or having a family and so on. Uh, the second reason I, I would uh, find it into the labor market, uh, women's uh, full-time uh, weekly earnings were in uh, in 2020 86% uh, of that of men. Uh, of course, uh, that together with the fact that there has been a reduction in full-time employment means again that women are more likely to face greater difficulties uh, gaining that desire, financial independence that will allow them to make this decision to move out. Another important factor can be in the effect of the rising housing costs because uh, while this is likely to affect all Australians, whether they are renting or uh, buying a property, of course, those most disadvantaged, including youngsters, face, again, greater difficulties. And of course, for women, it's another variable that we need to bring into the, into the pictures. Uh, and perhaps uh, another influential factor uh, may be the general social trend. Uh, nowadays, delaying adulthood is trendy, I would say social media, television, our peers encourage us getting married or having children later and generally settling down later. And therefore, the preferences and the expectations of these uh, female youngsters uh, have definitely changed, uh, contributing to keeping them at home with mom and dad for longer, I would say. Yeah, that definitely sounds correct. And I was also thinking that the data in this this report um, is reflective of 2019, so that's how Australians were living, you know, a couple of years ago, and it was also one year before the pandemic hit. And so I was just wondering whether you had any ideas about what you think we might see change in this area, if anything at all, as a result of COVID, and would you expect to see perhaps more young people living at home for even longer in the next report? Yeah, yeah. Uh, COVID-19 has certainly changed the equation over the last two years, but uh, uh, not completely in one direction, I would say. I mean, on balance, I suspect that uh, children living with uh, their parents has increased. But uh, I note, um, everybody noticed that in Sydney and Melbourne, as main metropolitan areas in Australia, rents have declined dramatically since March 2020. And also with reduced opportunities for travel, uh, many young adults may have more disposable income available for housing. So we could expect an increase in people departing from the parental home. But uh, of course, we also know that young adults living in hospitality, in arts, uh, sorry, working in hospitality, in arts, they have had declining incomes. So Honestly, we don't know what the direction of the trend is going to be. And definitely, this is a research question which will be posed in our forthcoming HILDA report uh, from 2020 results. Yeah, definitely an interesting question to answer. Like a lot of young people have um, been having 
you know, different experiences as well. So yeah, it will be interesting to see how that unfolds. If we move now on to the segment about fertility, which was also in the chapter that you authored, the Hilda survey uh, looked at fertility rates of Australians and also fertility intentions. So whether people were thinking about if they would have children or not. And I would love to hear from you, perhaps some of the notable things that came out of the research in this area. Yeah, for me as, as a woman, one of the most worrying results is exactly that. The fact that when these women, uh, I mean, when, they, when these individuals turn 49, half of them, not only women, but also men, uh, have not realized their dream, uh, fam their family dream, so to speak. No, they haven't yet had the number of children they desire to have. And while some of those 49 years old men may still father a child in the near future, uh, this is very unlikely for women, right? It's very difficult for a woman at that age to, to become a mother. And unfortunately, this means that also around 25% of Australian women in the reproductive years are likely to never have children. And this is really very striking news for me. Because, of course, uh, the situation has uh, only worsening since in Australia, since this has been a long-term uh, trend of decreasing fertility rates, right? And I think that uh, it was 2019 when it hit the bottom with only 1.6 children or babies per woman uh, being reached, no? So I think that uh, definitely this is changing the, the scenario about... Uh, uh, childbearing among uh, Australian females, right? Uh, why are women having fewer children? Well, there are many reasons for, the, for this, right? The first one being that, that the average age at which, child, at, at which women have these children have increased dramatically and now is close to 30 years of age when the woman has her first child. And of course, in part, again, this is explained by women spending more time into education and into the labor market, which prevents them from combining household chores with household bearing, with working responsibilities and so on. So uh, these are, as I say, important reasons for justifying this uh, decline in the number of children. Another reason might be in the fact that maybe you never find a suitable partner for that, for that, or even if you find a partner to share your life with, that person is not ready to have a, a child or to commit to parenthood. And I think that another important issue that, that I think we need to bear in mind in terms of um, also for policy purposes is the fact that uh, uh, information is uh, maybe women are not fully aware of what it means to delay motherhood. That uh, we uh, feel that uh, we are going to be eternal and we, will come, we can postpone everything in our lives. But the fact is that when you uh, delay things, this has implications. No? And this is going to affect uh, you, but also your family decisions, your family itself, but also Australian society because we are entering into a much older Australian society, and this is going to have implication at macro level in terms of labor force available for uh, the future and so on. So I think that this is, again, another fascinating topic that uh, needs to be explored further to bring into, into place empirical evidence that can be used for policymaking in the future, yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I do think there are a lot of policy implications there. And I think we should, yeah, definitely be looking at those. 
Um, and so then the third segment um, of your chapter in the report looks at the prevalence and also the characteristics of non-co-resident part partners. So basically it's this idea of how many Australians are living apart together. And I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit about what that means and what some of the key... Well, um, uh, yeah, traditionally one of the essential requirements in a romantic relationships uh, in our culture and society is living together under the same roof, right? However, Hiller results here reveal that in 2019, over 1.5 million single Australians reported having an intimate partner that they didn't live with. So what does this mean? Well, this means that while according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 37% of Australian adults were statistically defined as single, 20% of those actually had an intimate partner who happened to live somewhere else, right? So some, somehow I suspected this is more likely to happen among young people, right? That those in the age brackets of 18 to 24 are more likely to be in a living apart together relationship. But interestingly, we have observed since 2005, which we started recording this type of information, that around seven, that around 10% of those aged 45 and above are in this situation. So uh, we cannot deny that we are assisting a qualitative shift in the understanding of family. I think, with this type of results, because Australian marriage uh, rate has decreased again, and uh, where, whereas in before the entering of the 21st century, we had like six marriages per 1,000 person, this six has decreased to 4.5 marriages per 1,000 person in 2019, and also the number of divorce ha has increased, no? So uh, what this means is exactly that, no? Is the fact that we need to get used to the fact that the traditional pathway of meeting someone, having a relationship that ends up in marriage and having children and so on and so forth, this has changed. And there are other situations that need to be brought into the picture. And basically this is it right this is why we think this is very important because uh, in the end this new relationship uh, relationships are going uh, it's important we that we understand them because these are going to have implication for the economic and social lives of australians in terms of uh, including the household uh, formation decisions employment activity even geographic mobility the fact that for example everybody now wants to have uh, their, uh, their own house may have implications for the housing market, for example, right? So that's why we thought it was an interesting topic to bring into the, the discussion of uh, interesting results. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I'd uh, also like to thank you for all your work with this. I think it's such, Im such important work for, you know, the future of Australia to be able to understand all of these things and to see how it evolves over, over time. Um, yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Again, thank you very much for your interest on our research. Very much appreciated. This podcast is made possible thanks to Superhero. And each week on the podcast, we've been sharing a fin hack around a story or an issue that we've been following over the course of that week and some kind of financial lesson or hack that is available in it for all of us. 
So as we are recording, it is about two weeks before Christmas and we wanted to share one today about Christmas. I am likely too late in sharing this uh, for your own gift giving circles, but I am sharing it in the hope that it can help you. If it can't help you this year, then perhaps it can help you next year and every year after that. So it is pretty obvious. It is about the Kris Kringle, uh, this idea of pulling names out of a hat or however you want to approach it and then buying for one person only. It saves money. It saves uh, putting more crap in the ground post-Christmas and it saves time. Uh, But it often does require someone with uh, the courage, I guess, to actually suggest it and potentially in the process actually pull back on many years, if not decades, of tradition around gift giving. And so I am saying this hack in uh, the hopes that I can encourage, inspire you to be that person, make it easier on everyone else. Um, And also to say that this hack also goes a lot further than just the Kris Kringle because one way you can make it even easier and enable people to save even more money and even to request and actually get the things that they want or need is to put a real process around this Kris Kringle. So ask all members of the gift giving circle, whether that's a group of family members, a group of friends, whoever it is, ask them all to send through a wish list of three items that they actually want. Um, Tell them it is compulsory, they just have to do it. Uh, and to get really specific with the items that they put on there. So instead of just saying, I want a restaurant voucher, say exactly what restaurant you want the voucher for. Instead of saying, oh, it'd be great to get something for the bathroom, then say exactly what type of bathroom towels you want, even to the extent of colours and what kind of fabrics you prefer, all that kind of thing. Be really, really specific. Get all people in your group to be super specific because this way they will get what they actually want and more importantly, probably what they need as well. So it can be a real opportunity for that. Um, There's still an element of surprise because they're putting three things on their wish list. And the other really cool thing that comes out of this, the other thing that is really great is that you get the opportunity to learn more about those individuals in in that circle because they put those things on that that wish list it's possible that people haven't actually written a, a santa list since they were a child so it's an opportunity to see what kind of hobbies they might be interested in that they're not necessarily telling anyone about, what kind of things they might like to get more involved in or do over the next year. It can become a really nice conversation starter. I encourage you to think about this hack, if not for this year, then potentially for the next years. Um, It is a great one and I can tell you it certainly did save a lot of time and stress in my family. Thank you to Superhero for supporting this podcast and for supporting Women's Agenda. Superhero is an online trading app enabled you to invest in Australian shares, US shares and much more, you can check them out at superhero.com.au. Georgie, thank you for joining me today. Uh, We like to end on something light. What have you got? It cannot be succession, by the way, because we have recommended that multiple times now. And I think that started with you maybe like three years ago. You're one of those early uh, watchers who had to like wait the full two years for season three. Now you have put me on the spot because my recommendation was going to be succession, but I was going to say I have to put in the disclaimer that even though I absolutely love this show, it is so awful that it actually should come with a trigger warning 
just because of how horrendous these family members are to each other. I still can't look away. Every fam- every character is as disgusting as the next and that is the trick. They pull you into like one and then the next episode you're like, how could I have been on that person's side? That So that is how it runs. It's, it's just beautifully crafted. It is. And, oh, my God, I literally have nothing. We have not been watching it. I haven't been watching anything either, but I do want to do a little plug for a podcast. I'm not sure if you've heard this, but it is uh, The Trap by Victorian Women's Trust. And it is a collaboration with Jess Hill, a series that has looked at the dynamics of abuse and a coercive control. And it is so good. I've been able to listen to a couple of episodes and I actually got a recommendation direct from Victorian Women's Trust to to go and check out episode 10. It is this absolutely compelling, uh, you, you will not stop listening. And I think it's really important and a great um, addition to these conversations so word on to Jess Hill for pursuing the series and of course to the Victorian Women's Trust that do really really great work so you can go and check that out that is called The Trap. Georgie anything else from you? I do I've just realized this is in a very different category to Succession but a podcast and actually a person who I have been watching with great interest recently is a psychologist in America. She runs a business called Good Inside and Dr. Becky at Good Inside. If you have children, particularly if you have sort of, I would say, children under the age of eight, she is fantastic to follow and her podcast is fantastic. She really does post such useful content with sort of strategies and tips and tricks for managing little people. And I would say that across the board, I think kids probably like their parents are feeling pretty knackered. Um, It's been a really big couple of years and I have just found that she is an amazing resource. So if you've got little people and you ever struggle and you ever feel like I don't quite know how to manage these feelings, I don't know what is happening with this particular behaviour, Dr. Becky at Good Inside is now my favourite Instagram account. Okay, so I will just be closing this laptop and getting out my phone and going to that Instagram account and maybe disappearing for a few hours so I can just figure it out for my uh, children all under eight, all eight and under, and I'm looking for the strategies because like how they don't give you a check when you have a baby <laughs> like to help you out with all the things that you have to continue paying even though you may not be working as much as you previously were, they also don't give you a guidebook on how to actually parent. So great to have some good <laughs> recommendations there. Thank you so much, Georgie. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can check out all the stories that we've discussed, including Georgie's excellent roundup of that research on our website, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, uh, which comes out just before lunchtime with all the stories that you need to know about these issues every day. Thank you for listening.